and welcome to the latest episode of the Proximo podcast. This is your host, Maisie Clark, reporting to you from London. On today's podcast, I'm very pleased to be joined by Alan Marks, a partner in Milbank's Global Projects Energy and Infrastructure Finance Group, who will be discussing the potential impact of President Biden's Build Back Better bill, which is currently stalled in Congress. Alan has been at the firm for over 30 years and has taught for over 10 years at the University of California, Berkeley, in both the Law School and the Haas School of Business. Focused on energy and infrastructure project finance and development, Alan's practice encompasses private equity, M&A, capital markets and private placements, international transactions, public-private partnerships, plus a wide range of commercial contracts. He's currently working for the sponsors of multiple large offshore wind projects under development in New York and Massachusetts, a hydrogen production plant, and on various innovative biofuels projects. He is also acting for the lenders on the expansion of Terminal 1 at JFK Airport and on other P3 projects. In the past year or so, he has successfully closed the largest ever private placement of sustainability-linked notes for a global container shipping company, the acquisition of several freight rail assets, the sale of private equity-backed solar CNI developer, and the creative tax-exempt green bond project financing of an agricultural waste-to-energy plant. Alan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Maisie. It's a pleasure to be with you. It'll be really great to get your perspective on this topic. I think a good place to start would be on the prospects for the passage of the bill. In January, President Biden acknowledged that the bill needed to be broken up, but also said that it was clear that support could be sourced for the 500 billion plus for energy and environmental issues. So my first question is, what do you think the prospects are for the passage of the bill? What is the old quote? If we live by the crystal barrel, we're condemned to eat glass. I think it's difficult <laughs> to predict anything these days. Um, that said, I, I do think there are parts of the bill that will survive and perhaps pass in some uh, shape or form. Uh, at the moment, Congress is consumed by finalizing the uh, fiscal year 2022 uh, budget and appropriations bills. Uh, but once that's done, I think we will see something come out, obviously not uh, too close to the midterm elections. So there's, there's a, a short window uh, of opportunity uh, for the bill to pass. You know, it's interesting, we were in a similar position uh, back in 2005 with a clean energy package that passed the House of Representatives. Uh, it was a bill led by Henry Waxman at the time, uh, uh, the chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, passed by almost an identical vote within one vote of the bill, Build Back Better bill that just passed the House here last November. And it also stalled in a democratically controlled Senate, uh, in that case, subject to the filibuster rules. Uh, and uh, you know, we can talk more about the history of it, but I, I think one lesson from that is that eventually things do get done. Uh, we've extended production tax credits and investment tax credits for wind and solar uh, many times over the years, usually on a bipartisan basis. So I suspect eventually this year we will see a tax extender package, even if it's not part of the Build Back Better bill. Uh, I think some of the tax uh, provisions are going to be more challenging uh, for the Senate. Uh, and I suspect that it'll be a, a challenge to get all the Democrats to approve it underneath a budget reconciliation bill by the deadline. And then there are other parts which are not as relevant to energy or infrastructure directly of the bill that are also, of course, you know, politically quite important with respect to child tax credits and universal uh, pre-K education and, and so forth. And, and those um, you know, ha have various different uh, political challenges. So I suspect the bill will get broken up and the parts related to renewables and energy and perhaps uh, other climate provisions, uh, I, I would hope will we'll eventually get enacted. Yeah, that's great news. So in terms of the, the climate and the environment packages, what is P3's involvement in the policy argument there? Has it been key or, or periphery, do you think? Yeah, I would say P3's, uh, by which I mean public-private partnerships in the US, 
uh, are more prevalent in non-energy infrastructure. So we see them in transportation, uh, you know, toll roads, airports, uh, various projects where you have a government concession. Uh, I think water and water projects can benefit from P3 structures. I've done a lot of work on water supply as well as water treatment projects uh, uh, in the past on a P3 basis. Uh, most of those were, I think, strong beneficiaries of the large infrastructure bill that passed on a bipartisan basis last year. And uh, there were expansions of TIFIA financing for transportation investments from federal highways. Uh, we saw value for money analysis uh, injected uh, into some of the regulations in an attempt to uh, reduce life cycle costs, not just procurement costs, uh, and, and encourage innovative uh, financial delivery. Most of that has already been implemented now in this new uh, uh, infrastructure bill. The Build Back Better bill's emphasis is on the remaining piece, especially tied to climate, uh, about $325, $330 billion or so uh, of the uh, one and a quarter billion uh, trillion dollar package would be earmarked for uh, clean energy uh, initiatives. And we can talk more in, in, in a moment, but the ITC and the PTC that I mentioned and those being extended in particular and expanded uh, are, are part of that. That would be done for conventional uh, types of project development apart from P3s, which depend on a, on a government concession. Yeah, so the center of the climate provisions as passed by the House of Tax Credits that make it cheaper to build solar, wind, nuclear, and other low carbon energy sources. And you know, how impactful do you think these tax credits will be? I think, that, I think they have a huge uh, impact on the market. As I said, uh, investment tax credits, uh, which historically have been used, especially for solar projects in the US, uh, also are very attractive to wind projects that are innovative and very expensive. So offshore wind, for example, is a, will be and has been a beneficiary uh, of the planned ITC uh, expansions and of the ITC expansion we saw last year. Uh, the production tax credit, especially for terrestrial wind, uh, has been a huge stimulus for investment in renewables projects uh, over the years. And I, I would say those federal tax incentives combined with renewable portfolio standards at the state level have been the major drivers of significant investment in renewables in the US uh, over the last two decades. So if, if those subsidies fall away, uh, you know, there would be less federal subsidy for uh, those types of assets. Uh, offshore wind, as I said, is already being protected uh, from last year's legislative developments. Uh, one of the key parts of the Build Back Better bill uh, is not though just the extension of the time uh, during which these credits would apply uh, for projects coming online uh, in future years uh, or, or commencing construction in future years, but it's also expanding the scope uh, of these projects. So uh, the Build Back Better bill includes provisions that would allow the investment tax credit to be used for clean hydrogen. Uh, hydrogen in the hydrogen economy, very big uh, part of, uh, of the energy transition. Uh, and clean hydrogen, of course, is the best way to do that. Uh, with electrification of our uh, transportation sector and an increasing demand for electricity, with the rollout of 5G and increases in uh, cellular telephony and the demand for electricity, uh, I think we're going to see uh, an increasing need for all sorts of, of, of uh, generating sources. For net zero emissions, nuclear is also favored uh, in the bill and would benefit from uh, some of the ITC provisions as well. Mm, yeah, so we've obviously kind of touched on the ITC provisions. I was wondering if you could go into a bit more detail about the history of that and the background. Sure, so in, in the United States, the way that we subsidize 
uh, renewables. Uh, it's different than feed-in tariffs and things you might see in Europe and, and other in other countries. Uh, we we use the tax code to provide uh, credits, which can be monetized through tax equity transactions. For example, uh, we can come back to that in a moment. It's a bit arcane and technical and U.S. specific, uh, but essentially the government says if you are building a qualifying facility, let's say a, a solar power plant, and uh, you have eligible costs that you incurred either to build uh, or at the inception of, of operations to acquire uh, uh, that, that facility, then you're entitled to a refund essentially from the government of up to 30% of the project costs or the eligible project costs in the form of a tax credit. Uh, which, you know, if, if you don't meet certain conditions or sell the project, then you may be subject to recapture. But essentially, that is a, a way to reduce the cost uh, of, that, uh, of that investment. Now, in order to do that, you have to be the owner. And to be the owner of the asset, if you are a typical developer and you don't have a lot of other taxable income, uh, then you can't really use the credit fully. It's not refundable under current law. Uh, you need tax, uh, taxable income in order to offset and, and to use the credit. So quite often what will happen is developers of uh, large utility scale renewables projects uh, will sell the project to a new partnership that includes a financial investor that predictably has taxable income and can fully use or almost fully use that tax credit. So the allocations of cash, allocations of tax attributes, uh, including not just the credits, but also depreciation uh, are disproportionately allocated to the tax equity investor in early years of the of the uh, operations of the project. Once they reach a uh, target return, which is negotiated, uh, then the allocations uh, flip. And along the way, the initial developer will receive relatively uh, small proportion of the allocations of cash and uh, tax attributes, but they'll also receive perhaps you know fees and other things for managing and developing the asset. Uh, the new bill, Build Back Better, uh, and some of the things that may come out of it, even if it doesn't pass, could include the concept of refundability of the tax credits, which means that there would be you know, much more predictability about being able to use those, those credits, even if you don't have taxable income to offset. So that's the investment tax credit. Uh, the production tax credit uh, works differently. Uh, it does not incentivize, if you will, ex you know, expensive projects. It, in fact, uh, uh, incentivizes projects that will have a high amount of production. So this uh, often has been used, especially for U.S. terrestrial wind farms, uh, where the costs have come down, you know, very much over the last uh, 15 to 20 years. I remember working my first wind farm in 1991, uh, and uh, the costs have certainly come down. Efficiencies have improved. The scale uh, of the assets has improved. And uh, the production tax credits refunds an amount per kilowatt hour of production so that if the project is operating well, has high availability, uh, they'll have a higher credit. And if they're not operating because the wind source is not as good or if, you know, for uh, transmission related reasons or mechanical breakdowns, then the credit would be reduced. Uh, extending both those credits over the past several years, sometimes they've lapsed, sometimes they've been extended without interruption. Uh, has led to uh, somewhat predictable uh, and steady growth of the renewables industry. I think if you're within a couple of years of the expiration of a credit, it's very difficult to predict and, and continue you know, making large-scale investment. Uh, by the same token, if you have you know, five years or more 
uh, predictable tax credits coming, it's possible to scale up manufacturing, to negotiate power purchase agreements, uh, obtain land rights, and uh, uh, get an inter interconnection queue and do all the things that are needed for these larger, more complex projects. Yeah, well, thank you so much. That was that was really insightful. In terms of the balance of power between public and private capital, you know, how do you think the bill will affect that? So I think there's a myth that uh, sometimes people say, well, gee, if the government is investing all this money uh, in energy or infrastructure, or what have you, uh, that that will crowd out private capital. Uh, that is actually not borne out. If you look at the economic data, if I look at my personal experience in the industry, uh, there is a positive correlation between public capital or public spending, especially on infrastructure, and private investment and economic growth. Uh, there's uh, the renewable energy industry is a perfect example where you see uh, markets that are actually created by statute and by regulation, then uh, they're facilitated for it. Uh, so in addition to stimulating that investment in the infrastructure itself, and we see the same thing in transportation, uh, we've seen it in other sectors too. Uh, in addition to stimulating that public and private investment uh, in collaboration, including in riskier or innovative technologies before the costs of those can be brought down through uh, a successful project experience and scalability and, and technological improvements, you then have the additional economic um, add-on or multiplier effects of the infrastructure and the networks that are built, which enable other economic activity uh, across the economy. Mm, yeah. If we're talking about collaboration of public and private spending, then, you know, I think our audience would be keen to know what sectors and states potentially will see the most P3 involvement if the current bill gets passed. I know you've mentioned there might not be such a P3 focus, but if there is kind of where would we see that? Well, I think we could look at P3s too. Uh, we don't have to limit it just to build back better. Uh, as I said, the last year, the infrastructure bill that passed uh, did in encourage P3s uh, among other types of infrastructure spending. And the states that traditionally have led in this area are states that have a combination of large and deep markets and demand, usually high, you know, large population centers. Uh, Texas comes to mind, California comes to mind, uh, Virginia, Florida, uh, I think in the renewable energy space, New York is being quite aggressive in a very positive way uh, in encouraging all sorts of renewable investments, including offshore wind. Uh, we're working on uh, as, uh, a number of projects there. Uh, so anything from the federal government that stimulates those kinds of activities, and not just funding, uh, encouraging offshore wind leases, encouraging siting of transmission lines, uh, even when state regulatory authorities fail to do so, so that you can uh, move power into load centers from uh, places which are resource rich, either in wind or solar or other assets. Um, all of those types of investments, I think, will be useful. Uh, the areas of the country which are more challenging for private investors uh, in, their, in their revenue models include underserved uh, urban communities. So digital, uh, the digital divide is very real in a number of US cities. Uh, and also rural areas where because of lower population density, things being more spread out, it may be less economic to support uh, digital or broadband rollouts or water infrastructure improvements, uh, and perhaps even uh, the rollout of the electrification that's needed for say EV charging networks or, uh, or, or uh, advanced 5G tele uh, telecommunications. So the federal government and some state governments can play a very good role and P3s in the digital space, for example, or water space are good examples of meeting or stimulating the investment uh, needs in 
underserved areas, whether they're they're urban or rural. Uh, that kind of incentive is not really as necessary, perhaps, in other areas where the investments can be made economically without the government assistance. Yeah. And then I guess if we turn to tax equity investors, there seems to be a general consensus that tax equity investors are struggling to establish contingency plans in response to the complexities and nuances of the bill. So, you know, how do you think the, the, the bill could affect tax equity investors? So Build Back Better can affect the tax equity markets uh, in a number of ways, potentially. Uh, first, I think, you know, to, to recognize the need for tax equity depends on taxable income. Uh, so the two big things that really affect the market for tax equity are economic growth and tax rates, corporate tax rates in particular. Uh, the Build Back Better bill probably will not result, at least in its current iteration, in an increase in corporate tax rates. Uh, there are some changes in corporate taxes, corporate alternative minimum taxes, uh, and other things around the margins, but nothing that I think you know, materially increases the tax bills for a lot of corporates in a way that would drive further investment into tax equity. If we saw an increase in corporate tax rates, which were cut uh, significantly back in 2017, that could increase the tax bills that companies have, uh, especially large banks and others that have predictable uh, uh, taxable earnings, and that could increase the demand for tax equity. Uh, second, the refundability provisions of Build Back Better uh, and also parts of legislation that have been introduced separately, even if Build Back Better does not pass, uh, that could increase the certainty that the tax credits could be used. Uh, I, there are those who say, well, then why do you need tax equity? Uh, I actually think that could be beneficial for tax equity investors. Whenever there's predictability, that attracts investment. And regulatory uncertainty kills investment. Uh, so if there's more predictability that tax credits could be used, I suspect you would see more entrance into the tax equity market that could drive the cost of tax equity down, which is good for sponsors. Uh, but for the tax equity investors, I think the trade-off is that they have more certainty that they can use the credits regardless of volatility in their own uh, taxable earnings. So an expanded tax equity market could actually be the result of, of that refundability provision as well. Yeah. And then I guess as a general overarching question, what do you think is going to be the most impactful thing to come out of, of the bill if it gets passed? Well, if it gets passed, and again, I'll uh, set aside the, the education and, and health and, and other aspects of the bill, but ju mm. just looking at energy and infrastructure, I think if the bill is passed, it will be a significant uh, stimulus for investments that help to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, we've talked about uh, you know, hydrogen and nuclear and renewables. Uh, energy storage also would benefit from the bill uh, and from uh, uh, certain investments. Uh, the White House just released, even without the bill passing, uh, has just released uh, a statement with respect to uh, some of the programs that were in last year's infrastructure bill being funded. They put out a request for information, for example, for about $8 billion in clean hydrogen hubs. Uh, additional funding, about $1.5 billion for uh, other hydrogen uh, assets, and a real emphasis on reducing the carbon intensity of the industrial sector in the US, uh, including through direct federal procurement. Uh, the US government is a massive consumer, as you might expect, of things like concrete and uh, you know, materials to go into facilities and such. And so if, if they can uh, find ways to make steel cleaner, whether that's through you know, trade harmonization with the EU or uh, policies or otherwise, 
Uh, a lot of these things would be bolstered, I think, by what's in Build Back Better uh, that focuses on on climate and uh, decarbonization. Yeah, well, that's great. I think that's all we have time for. But thank you so much for taking the time to join me on today's podcast. It's been a really interesting discussion and it'll be fascinating to see what comes to fruition in terms of the Build Back Better bill and whether or not it, it makes it through Congress. Good. Thanks very much, Mary. It's always a pleasure. Uh, thanks again to Alan and thanks to all for listening. I'd just like to take a moment to remind listeners of our upcoming America's Digital Infrastructure Finance 2022 invite-only event, which is taking place in New York on the 3rd of March. More details on the conference are available on our website at proximoinfra.com. Thank you.